Hey friends, I am so glad you're here. I'm your host, Erin Cusio, and this is Room for Lovely. Each week, we'll bring you incredible guests with relatable stories and encouraging wisdom who remind us to look for the loveliness in every single day. Because while not all of life is lovely, there is room for loveliness in every single season. This week's podcast is a little bit different. Today is the launch day for my new book, Unraveled, Finding the Lovely When Life Comes Undone. A little over six years ago, we had just lost our son, Jacob. Maybe two weeks had passed, and I was standing in church during worship. My hands were barely lifted, my body still in so much pain, my heart broken. Tears were streaming down my face, and I could barely sing, but I remember a tiny little whisper in my heart that said, this is where your book will come from. I'd had a dream to write a book for years, but it was the furthest thing in my mind in that moment. I left church that day, and with tears still in my eyes, I told Blake what I'd felt. But I also remember saying, I have no idea what the story would even be. You see, in that moment, it was very hard for me to envision what good could come from this brokenness. I couldn't see the thread of lovely woven through. But God, in his kindness, was just starting the story. And all these years later, he has been faithful to keep his word. Jacob was born in December, but his due date was the first week of May. And I think it is only fitting that this story, so much of his legacy, would be born this week. We didn't plan it that way, but God is in every detail. Today, in celebration of the release of Unraveled, I would like to read a little bit of the book to you. To Jacob for the gift of learning to live lovely. There will always be four. Gravel crunched beneath our tires as we drove down the long country lane. The windows were rolled down with classic country drifting through the car. These were days we greatly anticipated, tiny jewels in the bank of our childhood memories, planting seeds of nostalgia that would blossom through the years. Time was marked by antiquated ideas and simplistic days. While every generation leaves a bit of its imprint as it begins to fade away, this one was different. The end of this generation seemed to bring about a seismic shift in how we do life. As a young girl, my family would take time and drive to visit all of my great-grandparents' houses on the weekends. Living within a small radius, this wasn't a lengthy drive, but it was a journey that consumed the day. Visits were rarely rushed and only later truly cherished. We never arrived to find them scrolling on a phone or even watching television. Oftentimes, my great-grandmother would be out in the yard working or in the kitchen making a fresh pot of coffee in an old rusted kettle. My great-grandfather could be found sitting in his trusty rocking chair, wearing a simple white t-shirt and overalls, his tobacco spittoon beside him, always ready with a story to tell. His stories were slow and steady, told in broken English as they grew up speaking only Cajun French in South Louisiana. This served as a distinct reminder of how tightly we clung to their heritage. We were not so far removed from their immigration or their fight to make a new life here. We often learned simple phrases or picked up on the language in an unconscious effort to preserve something so important to their legacy. This earmark of the difference in their generation coupled well with their tired, bright eyes focused on the conversation at hand, the weather predicted in their aching bones, and the products of their family recipes offered upon the table. Stories were told about how their homes were fashioned through painstaking work by men and women looking to create something worthwhile for the start of their families. 
They lived in simple houses, deemed shotgun houses. These were one linear structure divided by multiple doors leading to the next space. If you shot through the front door, the bullet would have gone straight out of the back. I'm not sure why anyone would actually do this, but that was always the explanation given. Young and curious, I often made my way through the living room and kitchen to the bathroom and bedrooms, peering into each room as I stepped delicately through. And there was always a burst of color displayed at the foot of every antique iron bed. Before the luxury of central AC and heat or even a window unit, they lived with only a fan or a blanket to combat the discomfort of the weather. And so, laid upon each bed was a beautiful crocheted afghan, carefully stitched and placed there for the night's rest in case the chill made its way through the cracked windows and screen doors. At the time, I didn't know how fortunate I was to have my great-grandparents around for as long as I did. Their simple life gently lingered in some of the habits of my grandparents, and when I was about 10, my dad's mom decided that she wanted to make each of her six grandchildren a crocheted afghan. This was a foreboding kindness, because we didn't know that she too would soon pass away. We were able to pick the yarn that she used beginning with the oldest. My grandmother always smelled faintly of sweat and bleach, and she kept a table full of snacks. I was often found sitting beside her as she worked. A lifetime of toil had given her calloused hands that moved with grace as each blanket came together. The chosen colors were methodically stitched and turned into a beautiful heirloom, a lovely reminder of the simpler times that had faded away. With only one grandchild younger than me, I observed four blankets before mine woven together with patience and persistence. I eagerly learned the steps needed to create such a beautiful work of art. Looking back, there was one part of the process that seems to linger in my memory most. As my grandmother would begin each blanket, she would take the yarn that had been selected and make much of the colors. It was as if it was the most beautiful yarn she had ever seen, though we all knew that she would gush about the next grandchild's yarn just as much. Carefully, she would remove each skein of yarn from its wrapper, unravel it, and slowly rework it into a new spool with which she could more easily knit. She was diligent to talk through each part of her method, firmly planting skills of a lost art into my soul. She cautioned that it was important not to rush this part of the process. Rushing would mean knotting the yarn, and then she would have to stop to work through the tangles until she could begin again. I watched her do this again and again as she made her way through all six blankets, carefully stretching each skein of yarn, slowly re-spooling, and then patiently stitching it all together to make something beautiful. I have gained much wisdom along my journey, but perhaps the foundation of it all was discovered as I was sitting by my grandmother's side as she crafted these blankets. There, I unknowingly began to first learn a lesson that would ring true for years to come. The most beautiful things in life often begin with an unraveling. We were seven years into our marriage when I looked down and saw two undeniable bright pink lines on a pregnancy test that I had not expected I would have to take. After all, the timing was terrible. The year before, I had quit my job to stay home with our three small boys, Three boys under six, actually, which meant that while my heart was full, I was often tired and usually crazy. By the end of that same year, my husband Blake had also decided to quit his oil field job. This went against the entirety of how he normally operates, a stable provider and a hard worker. 
But rather than some flippant decision of foolishness, it was a grand leap of faith to launch into what was always at the core of his heart, entrepreneurship. Being an entrepreneur sounds glamorous. Lots of people look at those who have started their own businesses as if they have it made. Many view those standing in the hidden trenches, starting a business, as a symbol of what it means to have arrived. But they usually neglect to notice the years of hard work, stress, and difficulty that are generally the cost of the luxuries associated with having your own business. Tired, overworked, and standing on shaky ground, I could think of a million reasons why this was not a great time to add another baby to our family. That's not to say we didn't want more kids. We just might have preferred to have them when our income was more stable, insurance was more settled, and our schedules were a bit more forgiving. My feelings quickly turned from panic to expectation, though, because I am a firm believer that God's timing is perfect. So somehow, I was certain that things were going to be just fine. Even still, there were moments when fear would creep in and I would have to carefully wade through logic to find faith. About a week after realizing I was pregnant, I was once again trying to talk myself back into trusting the bigger plan. As I was praying for peace and provision, I felt a whisper in my heart. This will be your redemption, baby. This baby will heal your heart and change the chapters of your story. I felt my resolve grow again, and I intentionally decided to cling to faith. Many people think that there is a thing called the seven-year itch in marriage. This theory suggests a falling apart at the seven-year mark. Some people believe that at this point in marriage, the honeymoon phase will have worn away, personalities will have evolved and shifted, and sometimes it can push a couple apart. For us, things were finally starting to fall together. While the seven years before were filled with love and babies and adventure, they were also filled with a fumbling of learning to work together, dream together, and be on the same team. So the idea of this redemption baby I'd been promised, this made sense. We had seemingly finally started to hit our stride in marriage, and this precious baby was going to be a distinct mark in the journey where everything changed. After the first trimester, we found out that this baby was going to be another boy. We began to let the idea settle that we were going to have four boys. I had always thought I would have three boys and a girl, but from the moment I found out I was pregnant, I knew in my soul that this baby was a boy. I just knew it. The weeks went on, and we agreed on a name, Jacob Seth. Jacob seemed like a strong name we both loved, and Seth was after my husband's best friend, who had given his life in the war in Iraq. We could think of no greater way to honor Seth than by giving our son his name, nor was there a better way to honor our sweet boy than to name him after a hero. Nearing the halfway mark of my pregnancy, I went in for an ultrasound to find that Jacob was growing and moving just as he should. The nurse commented how strong and active he was. Blake and I noticed that he looked just like his youngest brother, with his curved lip and his tiny pointed nose. They must have given us 10 pictures from the scan that day, which was uncommon, but little Jacob seemed to know that this was his moment and was more than happy to oblige. A few days after the ultrasound, I spoke at a Christmas women's conference and pressed my hand to my growing belly as I announced to the crowd that we had three boys with another due in the spring. The older ladies in the front row giggled with delight. The younger mamas in the back shook their heads, already fearing the weariness I was set to walk through. That night, I confidently spoke about the faithfulness of God. I read from Isaiah 55, which tells us that His ways are not our ways, and His thoughts are not our thoughts. I taught for an hour on the way that nothing in our lives is wasted. Every happening and 
Every happening and circumstance is used to mold us into who we are meant to be. He uses even the storms of life to water the seeds that will fulfill our greatest purposes. If for no one else, this message was a foreshadowing of encouragement I would need to desperately cling to in the days ahead. Just 10 days before Christmas, I was at home with our three boys. They were running wild through the house from the bedroom to the living room. The Christmas tree was perfectly decorated and sat in the corner with twinkling white lights glistening through the chaos. The boys were playing hide-and-seek, and in their rambunctiousness, they pulled the curtains down from the rod. Suddenly, everything in the room took on a very different disheveled look, which perhaps was another sign of what was to come. Earlier that day, I had been on the phone with Blake, who was out running some errands, and I mentioned that I felt like I was carrying incredibly low. We laughed and commented that we hoped Jacob would wait until later in the spring when my husband's business typically starts to slow down just a bit in comparison to early spring. I just had a small bump, though by number four, things seemed to assume position much more quickly than any other pregnancy. The moments felt intimate. I was the only one to really know this baby boy growing inside of me. At halfway through the pregnancy, movements are easy to feel, but quick to miss for anyone but mama. I rose from my work at the table and instinctively grabbed my belly. I felt something change, and I walked to the bathroom, instantly knowing that something wasn't right. I called the hospital, and based on my account, they calmly but firmly told me to come in right away. By then, both my husband and my mom had made it to me, and the moments after were marked by both a numbing blur and a resounding clarity. Discomfort was initially more present than pain, and we loaded as quickly as we could to make the 40-minute drive, intently focused on simply making it to the hospital. Before we drove off, my mama instinct kicked in, and I asked Blake to go back in for just a moment and assured the other boys that everything was going to be okay. I remember the light as we traveled down the interstate, and I started having to count contractions. The headlights of oncoming traffic seemed to be blinding as I tried to calmly concentrate my attention on counting instead of on the rising pain. The lights of the time ticking by seemed to leap off the dashboard as I felt the fear rise up violently in my throat when I recognized that only two minutes passed between each a telltale sign that labor was progressing. I remember the lights flashing at the emergency room entrance as ambulances arrived and departed. My husband drove hastily past them, through the truck and park, and like a strong hero, worthy of a medal of honor, hoisted me into a wheelchair and took me through the sliding doors. My body had begun to be racked with blazing fire contracting through my abdomen. I looked up to see his face also wrenched in pain, helpless to stop the horror that was unfolding. I remember the light glaring overhead as I listened to the frantically whispered orders from the nurses in the emergency triage room, insisting I needed to be transferred to labor and delivery immediately. Laying flat on a stretcher, recklessly wheeling through the halls, I stared at the ceiling as the nurse asked me to verbally document the steady contractions. I remember the light of the ultrasound machine as the on-call doctor came in with a handheld wand and we watched our two tiny baby boy jump and kick and punch and move. His little body seared in my brain as the small view of the image gave fleeting hope that he was strong. I remember the light as I clenched my eyes shut in a moment that seemed unbearable with unrelenting screams that likely echoed through the halls. White spots appeared at the backs of my eyelids, and I yelled out in panic fear and excruciating pain. I remember the light position for delivery that shone at me as I mustered the strength to look at the doctor as she gently said, 
we've lost the baby, but I need you to push one more time. And while the medicine tore through my veins and dulled the pain of delivery, it did little to lessen the shattering of my heart as I pushed one more time. And then it was dark. There were voices calling to me, asking if I was okay and if I could hear them. Everything felt far away and distant. I wanted to answer them, but I wasn't able to find the strength to open my eyes. I finally woke in the middle of the night to see Blake sleeping uncomfortably next to me. The nightmare remained as I realized the hurried staff had gone away and everything was dark. Everything was so dark. I remember getting up to hold my lifeless baby boy. There was a hollow feeling in my arms as he lay unmoving in the palm of my hand. The same curled lip and tiny pointed nose we'd seen just a week before at his ultrasound were now still. A precious hat had been improvised by the staff to fit his tiny little head. I held him and I wept as the darkness of the room spilled over my shoulders and into my heart. I remember waking up the next morning to my mom coming in to gently explain that she had already begun to carry the burden of funeral planning. A dark cloud filled my brain as I tried to consider decisions I was not prepared to make. How is a mother ever prepared for picking out an infant's casket? How can she cut through the moment to try to find a song appropriate for burying her child? The sky seemed dark as if even the day had given pause to honor my grief. Immediately the next morning, the pain in my body and my soul felt unready to face this reality. But I was wheeled out of labor and delivery. The unpredictable Louisiana weather had brought me to the hospital in sandals. But this new day was very, very cold. My feet exposed to the elements felt out of place and strikingly sensitive. As is the standard procedure, I was left waiting on the curb for Blake to get the truck and bring it around to the entrance. It wasn't raining, but the day was cold and dim. I, too, felt out of place and sensitive to every motion around me. I had sat on that same curb at that same hospital three times before with newborn babies, flower bouquets, and overpacked diaper bags. Passersby would beam and offer their congratulations for our beautiful newborn child. I would clutch the swaddled baby lovingly and give a smile worthy of my all-consuming pride. My husband would gingerly load us all up as he shook hands with the guard and accepted the mission of getting us all home with our new precious cargo in tow. But this time, I was left with only my purse in my lap. I pressed my hands awkwardly against it, uncertain of what else to do. My gaze focused downward, and strangers looked at my empty arms and tear-stained face and quickly turned their heads as shame burned on my cheeks. I was the only passenger in tow this time, and the heaviness of that moment pressed hard against my soul. We talked briefly on the quiet ride home about funeral arrangements. I guess we need a song, I said. We ultimately chose a song called Good Good Father. I'm not sure what even drew me to that decision. It was a newly released worship song at the time, and I barely knew any of the words. My sister-in-law agreed to sing it at the graveside service, and as my little family sat in uncomfortable chairs at the gravesite of the baby we never got to fully meet, The words rushed through the cracks of my heart as she played and repeated the bridge. You are perfect in all of your ways. You are perfect in all of your ways. You are perfect in all of your ways. And I'm loved by you.
just a few days before, I had stood before women and proclaimed that God is faithful. And though his ways are not our ways, he is perfect in all of his dealings with us. And I knew, though my heart was completely shattered, though this situation was not good, in all things, he is good. There is no greater healing. There is no greater peace. There is no greater comfort than when we are forced to stare down the ashes of darkness that have found their way into our lives and somehow we see God in all of his goodness begin to raise light and hope and beauty from the ash. Where we see destruction, he sees an opportunity to rebuild. Where we see hopelessness, there is hope. Where we see fear, he gives strength. Where we see mourning, he is the joy that fills our hearts. He promises to give beauty for ashes. So though I stared into the rubble of my circumstance, heart shattered and grief near, I held to my confidence that in all things, God is good. Situations may not seem good. In fact, they may be downright devastating. Even still, God is good. Though it may take a long time to see any good in this situation, I would choose to see that God is good. And this precious baby, this redemption baby, he was indeed meant to change the chapters of my story. For this, this was the beginning of my unraveling. Friends, thank you for allowing me to share just a bit of my story with you today. If you haven't yet ordered your copy of Unraveled, I would be so honored if you would take a moment and head to book.erincusio.com and get your copy today. I hope that you remember that even in the most difficult of circumstances, no mess is too big for God to make it good. He is good. In all things, He is good. And when we allow Him to unravel our lives just a little bit, It's only then that he can weave it all together in a way that is beautiful. When we allow him to make some room for lovely. 